Welcome to the London Business School podcast series, The Reality of Artificial Intelligence, How Are Businesses Using AI Today? I am Julian Birkinshaw, Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at London Business School, and I'm the host of this series where we discuss the practical applications of AI in the workplace. We cut through the hyperbole and the scaremongering to ask, how are companies using AI today? What are the practical problems it is solving? Where are the challenges and opportunities? Joining me for this discussion are Alex Rosen, a senior software engineer at Amazon, and Kayvan Vakili, Assistant Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at London Business School. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. The focus of today's podcast is speech recognition. A couple of statistics to get us started. According to a recent report I read, 27% of the global online population is using voice search on mobile and 34% of internet users say they are interested in purchasing a voice-controlled smart speaker such as Amazon Echo or Google Home. So this is a massively important trend because it's got the potential to change fundamentally how we interact with the digital world. Alex, you work for Amazon in the area of speech recognition. And I should just note, as we get started, that we're not asking you to, to betray any Amazon secrets. You're speaking in a fairly generic way about what you and others working in this field are doing. Let me start with a really simple question, which I suspect has quite a complicated answer. If I say to my smart speaker, Alexa, please order some more dog food. What happens? What happens behind the scenes? What, what are the next steps on a sort of technological basis? Sure. So with Alexa or Siri or um, any similar product, at a high level, there's four steps in the process. So the first step is speech recognition, which is taking the sounds that's coming through the air and picked up by a microphone and uh, figuring out what words the person said. The next step is called NLP or NLU, which is natural language processing or natural language understanding. And that is taking the words that were emitted by the speech recognition module and figuring out the meaning behind those words. So discovering your intent. So if your words were, please order dog food, then NLU will figure out that you're trying to order something, you, what it is, and may part of that module may be about uh, figuring out what kind or how to get it to you. And then the third module would be on Alexa, it's called the skill. It's the specific task that you're asking for. So in this case, it would be to activate the purchasing skill and give it the intent, the information about the, you know, the object of your purchase is dog food. And that skill will go and do something in the world. So for a, you know, if you ask what the weather is, the weather skill will go out and find the weather. If it's a purchasing skill, it will go and purchase and confirm, you know, that you want to actually purchase it, things like that. And then the final stage is called text-to-speech, which is to verbalize the response from that skill. So this is the opposite of speech recognition. So it might be, you know, the weather is sunny or, yes, I've ordered it. And all of this happens in, in an instant, right? I mean, you know, exactly. you get the within a second or so, you're typically going to get an answer. And it's obviously not happening in the Amazon Echo. All this is happening on a server somewhere in a computer system. Exactly. So Alexa is always getting smarter. She sort of lives in the cloud. And so as the team improves all those different areas, automatically your, the um, speech recognition can get more accurate. She can learn new skills. 
so you you know on typically on these devices you purchase the hardware once but then the capabilities get better and better right and just go one layer deeper because i i get it that the last the third and the fourth stages are actually relatively straightforward but just tell us a little bit about what this natural language processing kind of thing looks like because you know english is a hugely complex language and of course we can talk about foreign languages other languages in a minute but english is difficult how does it possibly decode the meaning when so mm. many words are so similar when the, the, the structure of our sentences is so complex yeah yeah absolutely so the the first two steps in the process are the the speech recognition and the natural language understanding i worked on the speech recognition part so i'll talk a little bit more sure. about that because that's the one i i know best so I'll go a little bit deep into the technology. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, just just help us understand because it's sure. you know most of us have no idea what the underlying technology here is. Yeah. So the speech recognition, you can think of it as a sort of a three-stage pipeline. So the first part is some signal processing that takes the audio waves that come out of your mouth and are picked up with a microphone and does a bunch of math on them. And one of the things it does is chunks it up into little short chunks of audio. So, you know, a fraction of a second and does some algorithms on that to represent them as a, as a bunch of numbers to feed into the next module. So the next step is we take each little chunk of audio and try to figure out which phoneme that represents. A phoneme is like E or uh or whatever, right? Exactly. It's the shortest bit of a word, a spoken word. And so the technology that is commonly used nowadays is something called the neural network or deep neural network. So the output of that for each little chunk of audio is sort of for each phoneme, what's the probability that it's that phoneme? And so it's essentially calculating probabilities that this set of sounds that come out of my mouth might have the following meaning. Exactly. So that's the phoneme. And then the last step is taking all of those, those that sequence of phonemes and putting it together to form words. And so, you know, we know the probability of each little chunk, but if you put them together, you need to use your knowledge about the English language, what's likely to be said to an Amazon Alexa to, in some cases, choose the second most likely phoneme for one little chunk of audio. So in a noisy environment, that's essential to be able to use your, your knowledge of what words are common, what phrases are common, to be able to make a better guess than if you just figured it out straight from the, the most likely phonemes in this, in this string. Thank you. I mean, that's, that's more detail than I've ever heard before. So, Kayvan, from your point of view, I mean, obviously you've got the breadth, shall we say, rather than the depth of knowledge about how this works. Help us understand where the real advances have been in the recent years, because, you know, the concept of speech recognition has been around forever. Certainly 10 years ago, it was useless, and it's come on in leaps and bounds. What's happened in the recent years that's made this suddenly a viable technology? Sure. So... Alex, please, you know, feel free to correct me because you actually know much more about kind of this particular aspect of it. But I think there are kind of two main areas broadly that, that kind of have advanced a lot over the past few years. One is kind of on the machine learning side of the thing. So Alex mentioned that, for example, they use uh, deep neural networks to identify these phonemes. I guess kind of also the last stage probably also requires some machine learning algorithm to identify now that we put these phonemes with different probabilities, what sort of word probably we're hearing. And just to help us with machine learning, because of course, a lot of people don't really know what you mean by that. This is essentially the computer referring back to this huge body of millions of previously recorded pieces of data so that it can actually understand what you said in the context of that 
body of data. Is that right? Absolutely. So I think the most commonly used algorithms that we know right now in businesses are kind of generally categorized under this broad category of supervised machine learning. And this is generally the idea behind it is, let's say you have kind of a bunch of apples and a bunch of other fruits, and then you have this, what we call training data set, and you tell the computer that, look, this is an apple, this is not an apple. And by telling the computer means these are a bunch of zeros and ones, and we say, hey, these zeros and ones represent an apple, and these other ones, they're not. And then if you have enough of a you know, sample size, of a training sample size, then after a while, you know, the computer with a good probability uh, can look at new data coming in and say, hey, you know, 75% this is probably an apple, or you know, 67% this is not an apple. And here, kind of the only difference is that instead of apples, we have phonemes. And instead of a training data set of apples and other fruits, we have kind of a, a massive data set of people pronouncing different phonemes recorded as zero ones, and then someone has actually typed exactly what each phoneme was, and, and now the computer knows, oh, this phoneme is associated with this zero one sort of pattern. And so kind of essentially, this is really a prediction machine. You, you see, you know, the computer sees a bunch of zero ones and say this is, or with some probability, this is this. Right. And, and the quality of that prediction has been going up because the amount of data available for it to kind of compare your speech to has been growing. Is that right? Yeah, and I think kind of we've had probably a lot of these algorithms for a very long time. Probably what has changed massively is first the access to data. We have much bigger data sets nowadays for training purposes. The other one is processing power. Even in the past, even we had when we had these massive data sets, it would have taken us months, years to do the sort of training that nowadays can happen on an Amazon server. And I think the third one is kind of which is fueling the first one probably is connectivity. That you know people are just recording everything. People are just putting everything on these databases. People are just connected all the time. So the data just doesn't go lost in their local space. Everything is just transferred all to these servers and then used for these training purposes. And th that has changed massively. So the, the whole way in which we structure language in terms of the, you know, the, the various grammatical rules that we were learned at school, this is all irrelevant to the computer. Is that right? For the most part. I think some of it comes into place if you want to fine-tune algorithms. But a lot of times, computer is really agnostic to what sort of thing it's trying to kind of give a prediction on. I think that, like in my mind, this machine learning training process is probably very similar to how babies and children learn, not from school, but mm, just, right. just in normal life. They hear you know, millions of examples of people talking and saying things and holding up an apple when they when saying the word apple. Yeah. It's essentially the same kind of thing. Their brain is using these algorithms on, inside of it to make this association. These sounds right. make this word with this meaning. And of course, we don't bother to teach kids grammatical rules until way later in life, and yet they figure out a way of, of talking. Yeah. I think that's, that, that's a very good example. That's also the fundamental shift that happened in sort of, you know, what machines can do. We used to have what we called if and then sort of algorithms. So it wasn't like we didn't have any sort of automation in the past. We also had autonomous kind of lift trucks on mm. manufacturing floors. But in the past, it was if you see a yellow line, just follow the yellow line. Right. And then it, once it becomes complicated, then we don't know how to write that if and then, or it's actually very time consuming. So say, I see you, Julian, you know, a couple of times and someone says, oh, you know, this person is Julian. And then, you know, I see you a third time and say, oh, that's Julian. I know that person. I can never explain how I know that this is Julian, right? And that's kind of the difference between 
if and then, if I don't know how to explain that, I can also write an if and then for it versus, you know, I don't need to explain the if and then logic behind it. If I show enough examples to the machine, the machine can also use the same sort of cognitive mechanism to kind of to understand it. So look, let's move from the technology now to the the applications and the consequences in the future. First of all, how, how good is speech recognition now in terms of you know how accurate is it? Yeah, so they have these essentially competitions or valuation tests that have been going on for many decades. And originally the test was very, very simple. It's like, can you recognize digits with a very clear audio signal? And in the, I think maybe the 60s and 70s, that went from being not very good to being pretty much perfect on this very, very simple example. And then they made the test harder and they said, okay, now, you know, people talking on the phone. And again, that started off really lousy and then it got really good. So nowadays, you know, if you're uh, doing speech recognition on a clear signal, not in a noisy room, not from across the room, but somewhat close up, it can be as good as a person. What's more challenging and has gotten actually good recently is things like from across the room or in a noisy environment or multiple people talking are the hard problems now. And so obviously it's getting better at those and presumably accents are difficult and presumably other languages other than English are also more difficult. Yeah, and so getting access to all the training data is one of the big limitations in that case. So the more common the language, the more training data there will be and therefore the more accurate it will be. Got it. Let's talk about how speech recognition technology is changing both our everyday lives and also the business environment. I mean, if we're using this on our mobile phones, if we're using it around the kitchen table, that's already changing things. Kayvan, any any thoughts on other ways in which we are starting to see this technology really change the lives of, of certain People? I can think of a, so other than kind of the usual smart assistant kind of cases that people can think of, like, you know, getting weather prediction or some sort of, you know, music library, play a song for me or music for me or something like that. Most of this is nowadays or integrated into the smart assistants. Probably kind of outside of that, there are a couple of examples I can think of. One big area is accessibility. A lot of people, for many reasons, might not be able to you know, write easily. And now speech recognition and natural language processing is helping a lot with these people. You know, think about the students with disability in the class. Right. Note-taking has become a kind of huge thing uh, for these people. Dictation is now a, a big chunk, which is a lot of is actually integrated now in smart assistants. But I'm guessing a lot of kind of reports that are created in, in, in human resource offices. Uh, a lot of the messages I might send in my emails, a lot of them can actually be nowadays dictated to the computer. And another area I can think of is voice messages kind of now being texted to people. So that's, that's kind of a back-end sort of function that a lot of network operators now kind of putting into their systems. So I'm, I'm imagining the office of the future. And of course, if you go around the office today, and certainly a few years ago, it's full of people typing away on their computers, right? Whether that's productive or not is a separate question, but that's what you see in many, many offices around the world. Is that going to change? What What is the workplace 10 years from now going to look like as we all get a little bit more accustomed to the idea that actually speaking is probably quicker and probably more fun than typing? Yeah, it's a great question. Will dictation be accepted in an office where you've got a lot of people around. And so some people with carpal tunnel problems on their wrists, for example, will turn to dictation products uh, nowadays. And it'll be interesting to see if 
that more efficient way of typing, of communicating, can catch on in an in a open office, for example. Right, because at the moment it doesn't feel like it has done. I mean, we do see people, of course, you know, on video calls or whatever, and they're speaking, but they're trying to keep their voice down, they've got their headphones on. I just imagine that, that that's going to become more and more pervasive, speak, people speaking not to the, you know, to the conference call, but actually just speaking into the machine and, and essentially typing, typing that way. There's also a lot of just pad dependency once we develop a technology as pervasive as keyboards. We develop everything around that. So a lot of the software that is produced over time, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of kind of applications, people, when they were thinking about designing them, they thought about the sort of interactions we have usually with a computer, you know, using keyboard. And now a lot of these, you know, applications, need, you need to go back to the scratch and actually design them with a, with a different sort of mindset. And a lot of times, you know, producers don't bother. You know, as long as we use them, there is a market for keyboards. And as long as there is a market for yeah. keyboards, they don't have any incentive to change. So. Exactly how fast or, you know, it, it goes. Yeah, I mean, it's a big question. For me, the, the keyboard is a strange invention when you think about it. I mean, far from the fact that it's arranged in this weird way, but a means by which we get our thoughts into the system via our fingers and this keyboard thing, you've got to say that that is not the end of the story. And I can imagine our own kids may never need to learn to type in the way that we have. Yeah. Alex, do you want to get in on that one? Yeah, well, and, and you know, there are some applications where you... Your hands are busy. Right. So, I mean, in the home, right, cooking is one obvious mm -hmm. example. But another is in a lot of medical applications. When a doctor is examining or even doing a surgery, that may be a much better interface. Obviously, they can't just you know, go over to the keyboard and start typing. Yeah, it is fascinating. Let me just, in the final part, switch over to some of the downsides or dangers that, that uh, are often talked about. I mean, Alex, I'll, I'll start you with, with the obvious question, which is if we've got our Alexa or our Siri sitting on our kitchen table, is it listening to every word I'm saying? Is it spying on me? Right. So a common misperception is that, for example, Amazon is listening to everything that I say. So one of the important things to know is that nothing is ever transmitted to Amazon unless she hears her name. So Alexa is called the wake word, and she wakes up when she hears her name. And one of the tenets is that her light always lights up whenever she is actually sending anything to be processed. And she won't do that unless she hears her name. You can also, if you want to, you can configure it so that it will emit a beep whenever that happens, so you're aware of it. And of course, she has to be listening, otherwise she wouldn't know to wake up. So by definition, there has to be a speaker there to listen to our voices, but yeah. it's only once that light goes on or the beep goes off that we know transmission is happening. Exactly. So there's one little process that actually runs on the device itself, which just only knows about her name and just constantly listening for her name and nothing else. And that audio gets you know doesn't get stored anywhere. Only when that little process discovers that someone said Alexa does, then it start to wake up, the light turns on, and then the audio gets sent for actual processing. The actual speech recognition kicks in. Okay, Van, other issues in terms of the, the downsides or the risks or worries that people have with, with voice? I think a lot of it is boils down to worries rather than actual security issues that we are aware of. And of course, microphones and, and cameras have been traditionally kind of very important targets for hacking purposes. This is, you know... We usually kind of, we think of them as sort of passive data gathering sort of devices. You know, when I use my keyboard, the keyboard cannot really see me or knows what I'm thinking. Whereas when I'm talking to someone or I'm doing something, 
I'm not sure if my camera is really recording me. I'm not sure if my microphone is picking up my voice. We're not aware of any sort of major hack on any of the kind of smart assistants that, that are available nowadays in the market. But I think the worry is always in the, in the minds of the people. And of course, kind of this information that Alex said that there is always a wake word. And unless you actually see the blue light or the green light or whatever it is, the device will not listen to you. There is another level that people actually believe that. And I think part of it is just the, the psychological aspect of it that we probably use more personal information in or verbal communications than in what we type, for example. And that makes us a little bit more sensitive. Also, the locations in which we're using this as smart assistance, they're much closer to our personal privacy than, for example, the workspace, the email, talking to the colleagues. We, we already kind of filter ourselves a little bit in those communications. Whereas at home, cooking, you know, talking to your uh, partner, these are very private sort of communications and people are generally much more kind of sensitive around these issues. So th there is always a concern. And, and of course, you know, when the internet first came along, people were worried about putting their credit card details exactly. on the internet and we've got to gradually get used to this. And as you say, the evidence so far is that there haven't been yeah. huge security issues. I think kind of the other aspect of it, I'm not sure if it's a downside or anything, but the market power is a little bit shifting, right? So whereas in the past, you, you could say that kind of the entry point into kind of internet was either Google search or kind of one of the major social networks, say, you know, Facebook. If we get to the point that most of our communication with kind of our digital world is through the smart assistants, then whoever gets the dominant share of that, they then mandate what sort of search happens behind the scenes, what sort of kind of platform for purchasing happens behind the scenes. So we will see this sort of fierce competition, already kind of big players, all of them are chipping in because they know that whoever controls the entry point, that sort of company will have a lot of bargaining power in the future. And most of these companies are just happy to have this free smart assistance in the hands of the people if they can give them the information that they entry. And this is the usual suspects, isn't it? It's, it's Amazon, Apple, Google. Exactly. Microsoft. Microsoft. And I'm guessing Alibaba and Tencent in China, but I don't know for sure. And of course, this is not a, a specific to speech recognition problem. This is a problem that we're seeing in many, many sectors of the digital economy. So look, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Alex Rosen and Kayvan Vakali, for a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks. Please join us again for more in our podcast series, The Reality of Artificial Intelligence, available on www.london.edu. Thank you. Thank you.